0: Thanks too for those of you who've been asking how I'm doing this week because my wife is on holiday with the girls in Morocco and so I've I've been, dad has been home alone with the kids and the dog which is always a slightly kind of precarious situation but we're doing okay. Thank you so much for asking. Your prayers have seen me through. Uh, the, the only kind of slightly dodgy moment was when I took my dog for a walk yesterday and she tried to mate with a stranger's dog. That could have been hard to explain to my wife when she got home, but it was okay. I rescued her. So it's a, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Heading into the new year because kind of psychologically certainly in this nation it's this funny moment where we kind of head into a new year and nothing really has changed between December and January apart from a new episode of Sherlock which I thought was quite good. Nothing's really changed but psychologically we hit January and suddenly we start to look at our life. we like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? Where am I heading? What are my goals? How am I going to lose weight? How am I going to get fit? How am I going to be happy? Psychologically this funny thing happens in January where suddenly we're like right I just need to look at everything again and there's something in our psyche where we start to ask these big questions. What are my goals in life? What's my purpose? What's my vision? Where am I heading? Now for some of us you may not have quite got to those questions yet. You may still be thinking Who am I? What's my name? Why do I have to get up so early for work? You know, you may still be in that place, don't worry, you'll get to these other questions I'm sure. And so what we wanted to do over the course of the next four weeks is do a short series looking at pictures of the future which are the big questions for us as a church. What is our mission as a church? What is our vision? Where are we heading? What kind of people are we trying to be on the journey? These big questions, we're going to ask those together over the next four weeks. And here are four kind of key areas that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at mission, vision, structure, and culture. There we go. The mission question is, why do we exist? Why are we here? The vision question is, what are we gonna do about that? The structure question is, how are we gonna do that? And the culture question is, who are we gonna be on the journey? These four questions are vital, both to your personal life but also to us as a church. These are the questions of the future that create a sense of purpose and forward momentum. These are vital, vital issues. And this came home to me again this last uh, June when my family and I went to Disneyland on holiday. And Disneyland is an amazing kind of place, we've been there twice, we went once to Paris in 2007, in fact here's a picture of Sam, 2007, trying to pull that sword out of the stone, we revisited last year, here he is again, (laughs) still couldn't get that thing out of the stone, still couldn't, still trying. And you know, one of the things that is amazing when you go to Disneyland, it's just this incredible kind of world that's being created you kind of enter this strange kind of bubble where everything is kind of magical and beautiful and happy and funny and joyful and of course Disneyland and Disney was created out of one man's sense of mission Walt Disney and Walt Disney when he was asking this question about why do I want this company called Disney to exist his answer was very clear Disney exists to make people happy That's why Disney exists, that's its mission statement to this day, to make people happy. And out of that mission, everything that Disney does and has done since is born, whether that's cuddly toys, whether that's movies, whether that's theme parks, the the vision, the outworking of the mission is those things, but it all originated from Disney's thought, I want to make people happy in this world. That's why Disney exists. And Walt Disney actually died before he saw his first Disney theme park open. And someone once said to one of his close colleagues, wasn't it a shame that Walt Disney didn't live to see Disney? And his colleague replied, but he did see it. He was the very first person to see it. He saw it in here. He saw it in here. He saw it long before anybody else did. That's what made him get up in the morning because he wanted to make people happy. He had a clear sense of mission. His why. Question this morning is this. Are you clear about your why? Are you clear about your why? Why am I here? Why are we here? Why do we exist as a church? What is our Why? And when you begin to find your why, it creates this compelling picture of the future that gets you up in the morning. It gives you passion for life. It gives you a sense of meaning. This is why I exist on the planet. Do you know there's a reason why God hasn't beamed you up into glory already? And that's because there's something for you to do now. There's a why for you to discover. Your why is not to get to heaven when you die. That's already been sorted there is a bigger why for why you're here on this planet right now. A man called William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army. He was living in the East End of London, and one morning he went out to teach people about Jesus in the streets of the East End of London which was one of the most notoriously kind of rough areas of London and as he walked through the streets he just saw filth and poverty and drunkenness and violence and hopelessness everywhere he went and as he stood on a, preach cor- uh, a, a, a kind of street corner to preach the gospel about Jesus people started throwing rotten tomatoes at him and, and potatoes and mouldy old fruit and cursing him and shouting at him and he walks the journey back home again and walks through his front door, his overcoat stained with tomatoes and rotten kind of vegetables, his face kind of muddy and dirty. And he walked through the house with a massive smile on his face. And he said to his wife, darling, today I have found my destiny. Today I found my destiny. He found his why. He found his reason for getting up in the morning. He couldn't, from that day he couldn't get the poor of London off his mind and it directed the whole course of the rest of his life. God has a mission for this church, and really the big umbrella of this mission, I think, is summed up by the words of the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2.14, where he says this, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God's glory, just as waters cover the sea. Let me read that again, because you didn't sound nearly as excited as I anticipated you would. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God's glory just as waters cover the sea. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. And this is a message that will not self-destruct in five seconds. This is a message that's going to last a whole heap longer than that. To fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory. John Piper says this, God's glory is the goal of all things. God's glory is the unifying goal of all history. God's glory. So I wanna look at this issue in a little bit more detail this morning. Firstly, let's try and define glory because glory is kind of a word we don't use very much today. And in the bad old days when I was a Man United supporter, sorry Chris Tuffin wherever you are uh, I, I had this old vinyl kind of records that came out around the 1985 FA Cup final and it was sung by the Manchester United team and it was called Glory Glory Man United Glory Glory Man United and still today you can hear that on the football terraces Glory Glory Man United I used to sing it on the football terraces at Brighton though there's not ever been that much glory with Brighton Football Club. But there you go, glory, glory. Biblical glory is not like that kind of glory. Also, it's not like the kind of glory that was often depicted in ancient Christian art where you used to get Jesus with a nice glowing halo around his head or the Virgin Mary looking very saintly. That's not biblical glory either. The word glory in the Bible itself translates roughly like this. It's the weighty, shining brilliance of God's worth and nature. The weighty, shining brilliance of God's worth and nature. But even that, perhaps, is slightly difficult for us to get a handle on. And I think one of the best illustrations of what glory looks like is from the life of Moses. Because Moses himself wanted to know the answer to this question. What is glory? What does glory look like, God? And he has this encounter and interaction with God in Exodus chapter 33 where he asks God this very question God show me your glory I wonder if you've ever prayed that prayer Moses did and it's a fascinating insight into the nature of God's glory we read this Exodus 33 verse 18 Moses said now show me your glory and the Lord said When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. See, God's response to Moses' question, show me your glory, is to show Moses his extraordinary goodness. God's glory and his goodness are connected. God says, Moses, I'm going to answer your question. I am a God of mercy. I am a God of compassion. That's who I am. You want to see my glory? I'm going to show you how infinitely good I am. I'm a God of compassion. I'm a God of mercy. And in fact, my goodness is so extreme, I'm going to have to hide your face so that my kindness doesn't kill you. my my, my goodness is so off the charts it's so over the top it's so shining and weighty in its brilliance I'm going to have to hide your face because you can't yet handle how good I really am if you saw me right now you'd probably have a heart attack and die I'm that good I'm going to hide you but I'm going to cause my goodness to pass by you what is God's glory? I would suggest this as a definition it is the unparalleled goodness of God put on display. So when you say, God, show me your glory, you are praying, God, show me the unparalleled goodness of your nature and put it on display. That's God's glory, it's in His goodness. And that's your mission right there. Fill the earth with the knowledge of His unparalleled goodness. Fill the earth. Wherever you find yourself on Monday morning, fill that place with the knowledge of how extraordinarily off the charts, over the top, God is in his goodness. That's your mission right there, should you choose to accept it. This actually is something that God himself is doing every single day. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you see a sunset sky in crimson and purple, it's like God is shouting, I am good. I made all of this. I am amazing. I'm over the top. I made this for you. John Piper says, God shouts with clouds. He shouts with blue expanse. He shouts with gold on the horizons. He shouts with galaxies and stars. He is shouting, I am glorious. Open your eyes. It's like this. Only better if you know me. And the Bible says, holy, 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 or good, 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 perfect, perfect, perfect is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. God's glory is in his extraordinary goodness. That's why glory is seen in every demonstration of kindness or making someone laugh or fighting for justice or building family or loving your children well or going out of your way to bless your friends or building a business to the glory of God or having a moment together as a church where we encounter his presence. All of these speak of the glory and the kindness of God because his glory is seen in his goodness put on display. Psalm 72 19 Praise be to his glorious name forever May the whole earth be filled with his glory May the whole earth be filled with his glory And this glory story has been actually unfolding From day one of creation Day one of creation You know I, I watched with my son Jaws for the first time this week Made in nineteen seventy five. This is the first time I've never watched Jaws before. And you know, I was I was scared right up to the moment I saw the rubber shark. If <laughs> you've ever seen Jaws, it's like that. You're like, oh my gosh, this is so bloodthirsty. And then you see the shark, and you're like, oh it's okay. It's gonna be okay. Now that is a gory story, but this is the glory story. And it's a story that started right from the beginning, right from that first moment of creation where God said, let there be light did you know that your purpose in life is wrapped up with God's purpose (laughs) see it's not so much when you become a Christian that God joins your story it's much more like you join his story Sometimes we think of becoming a Christian as like, yeah, I'd really like God to be on my team and you know, to help me out and to be there for me and to you know, be my sidekick and help me out when I need it. No, 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 that's not what's happening. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are joining God's story. I've got really good news for you this morning. You are not the centre of the universe. Now, I know that's a shock for some of you. You are not the center of the universe. And I've got a secret for you. God has been up to something long before you were around. He's been doing something on this planet long before you were ever even a twinkle in your mother and father's eye. God has been doing something. And if you're smart, you will ask this question God, what are you doing? How can I join in? See, you may be here this morning, you may not know Jesus. You may not yet call yourself a Christ follower. You may not say, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus. Listen, you will only really find your purpose when you join his purpose. That's the reason you were made. You were made to join a bigger story than just your own. If you only seek your fulfilment and mission in yourself, you will never find lasting joy. Because lasting joy is only found in joining God's story. And it's a glory story. It's a story of unfolding glory. Ephesians 1.11 says this. God is working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will. Just, Just try and get your head around that. God is working all things... Yes, all things. That word all is not a mistake. He is working all things together for conformity to the purpose of his will. God is up to something. And it's something he's been up to right from the beginning of the story. And particularly we see this when he creates the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 1.27. He says... So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. The mission right at the start of creation is fill the earth. Guess what? God's mandate and mission has not changed. Fill the earth. Govern it. Go into all creation. Fill the earth. Now, an interesting note here on singleness which actually helps us to understand this passage a little better Because the ancient Jewish understanding of this text in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, was seen only in the context of marriage. Which meant that historically in Jewish culture, there was very, very little value for singleness. Because their thought was, the only way that we can fulfil God's mandate to fill the earth and multiply is in marriage. Therefore historically in the Jewish understanding of this text it led them to believe that the only way that a woman could really be fruitful was if she got married and had babies. That was their traditional understanding of this particular verse. And consequently that's what happened. There was very little value given to those who were single. But what happens when Jesus comes and then Paul begins to teach later on is that both Jesus and Paul totally turn our understanding of marriage and singleness on their head because both Jesus and Paul affirm that there are two powerful ways to live. Either you can live in faithful heterosexual marriage between one man and one one woman or you can dedicate yourself to God and the sake of his kingdom as a single man or woman. And both of them affirm these are two powerful options. And consequently, they totally reframe our understanding of Genesis chapter 1 because no longer can we read, be fruitful and multiply just through the lens of increasing the population size. Instead, we suddenly read Genesis 1 through the lens of increasing his glory in the earth. Because this is not just about procreation, it's about filling the earth and multiplying God's glory wherever God places you, whether married or single. The mandate is fill the earth, fill it with the glory of God, fill the earth with the extreme knowledge of how extravagant God's goodness is, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not. And that is the same mandate that we have today, it's never changed. Be fruitful. Multiply, multiply justice, multiply kindness, multiply a knowledge of what God's like, multiply, multiply a a knowledge of his love. Go wherever God's placed you, multiply, 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 fill the earth until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God. That's where the story begins. It was always the big idea. And of course, you know the stories I do, this story. Glory project of God hits a major stumbling block through the fall of Adam and Eve as they sin as they disobey God. And what happens the devastation of the fall is that man's image-bearing nature gets distorted and therefore our ability to represent what God is like also gets distorted. That's what happens in the fall what happens when Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, our ability to multiply his glory gets shattered. That's why Paul, when he's writing in Romans 3.23, says this. We have all sinned and fall short of what? The The glory of God. That's primarily what sin does. When we choose to replace God with other things, it shatters our ability to experience and demonstrate the glory of God. And that's the tragedy of sin. It's the tragedy of sin. Romans 1 says that in our sinful state, we begin to exchange God's eternal glory for lesser created things. John Piper says this, if you don't see the greatness and glory of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be very impressed with the streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed by fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and the majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. How's the temperature in your heart on those things? Are you getting more impressed by streetlights than the sun? You're getting more obsessed by fireworks than thunder and lightning? Because that's what sin does. It causes you to get preoccupied with lesser, fleeting things that cannot get you experiencing the glory that you were made for. And that's why God hates sin so much. God hates sin in the same way that a mother hates the malaria that kills her child. That's the way God hates sin. He hates sin because he knows it disconnects you from the joy of his glory. That's why he hates sin. It's not because he's a killjoy. It's because God hates everything that stops your connection with who you are really made to know. That's what sin does. And that's why the whole the rest of the Bible is the story of God's unfolding glory restoration project. <laughs> You get the fall of man in Genesis chapter three. The whole rest of your Bible, right up to the birth of Christ, is God's glory restoration project. And the way that God did this was he first chose a man called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He was just a pagan man going about his business and then God suddenly said, Abraham, I'm calling you, follow me. From you, I'm gonna bless the nations of the earth. Through you, through your seed, every single nation on this planet is gonna get blessed. You are going to give birth to a seed and from that seed you will have so many descendants it will be like the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham starts the glory restoration project. God's desire to get the glory back. And then that story begins to work its way out through the nation of Israel. The people of God called to bring and restore God's glory on the planet. He chose a nation to do that. Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendants... And Israel experienced moments of fleeting glory. You know They had the pillar of fire leading them out of captivity in Egypt, but the pillar of fire eventually disappeared. Solomon experienced the glory of God filling the temple, but pretty soon that glory departed because of sin. Moses experienced the glory of God in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, but even so that glory departed. And all the while, there were these promises coming. There is one coming who is going to restore the glory in a permanent way. And this is what John 1.14 says, speaking about Jesus. Jesus, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came as the ultimate glory restorer. He is the ambassador sent from the Father from heaven to earth to get the original project back on track. Jesus, says Hebrews, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And as Jesus steps onto the planet full of grace and truth, he is God's glory in the flesh the permanent priest, the permanent prophet, the permanent king, the one who would cause glory to rest and remain forever in a lasting way. Jesus shows us what God's glory really looks like. And remember, if glory is God's goodness put on display, the centerpiece of glory in the whole of the the, the Bible that you have is a blood-stained cross where the Prince of Glory died. God's glory came in a way that nobody expected. People expected glory to be glory, glory, man united. But no, the glory was a bloody, rugged cross on which the Prince of Heaven gave his life. God's glory is shown in self-sacrifice. It's shown in love. It's shown in humility. It's shown in preferring others above yourself. It's shown in going the extra mile. It's in, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God's glory is seen in his love. that's why the cross was, it wasn't an interruption in an otherwise really successful ministry of Jesus. Some of us can read the Gospels that way, we think, wasn't it a shame Jesus was doing so well before the cross? He was doing miracles and people were coming alive from the dead, and you know, there was stuff happening. He had, what, he had a massive audience wherever he went, what influence that man had. What a shame he had to die. What an interruption. No, no, no. The cross is the pinnacle. It's the centerpiece of the kingdom. That's why the symbol of our faith is a cross because that's the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died that's why Paul says this 1 Corinthians 1 for the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing but for us who are being saved it's the power of God it's the power of God Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to fill the earth with the knowledge of this glory. That's why we will never stop boasting in the cross. It's why we will never stop singing about the cross. It's why we will never stop glorying in what Christ accomplished at the cross. Because glory is in his goodness, in the person of Jesus. And as we close, here are just three practical ways that we want to fill the earth with God's glory. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some of these. Firstly, it starts with Father. How do we fill the earth with his glory? Know the Father and show him to others. How do I do this stuff? How do I fill the earth with the glory of God? Know the Father. Know an extravagantly good God and introduce him to other people secondly culture put the goodness of God on display in the way that you live your life live radically generous in your workplace be an incredibly courageous man or woman be an authentic person that lives life in the light be someone who honors others above yourself Live a kind of Christ-like culture that demonstrates the goodness of God and so brings his glory. And then thirdly, kingdom. Extend God's glory in every sphere of life. Wherever God's placed you, bring the rule of Christ in that place. These are three just very practical ways that we do this stuff. Father, culture, kingdom. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, Fill the earth with the knowledge of God's glory.